There's got to be an explanation to all these UFO sightings, right? Hey, it's Stephen Diener, host of the Unidentified Alien Podcast. And whether you're new to the conversation or have been looking into it for years, you need to check out the fastest growing alien show out there, the Unidentified Alien Podcast, or UAP for short. There's a crazy amount of alien encounter stories out there from all over the world. And the beauty of it is that I bring them all to you and let you decide what you believe. Download and subscribe to UAP on any of the major podcasting platforms. And you can also find it on UAPpodcast.com. This is a WTOP original podcast. Coming up in this episode of Target USA, the battle in Ukraine. Today was um, another tragic day because the the terrorists have shelled again Kherson city, killing a small child there. The father of this little girl uh, carried her in his arms to the hospital, but unfortunately... The, the wounds were, you know, incompatible with life, so she, she died. Almost 3,000 miles away in Sudan, another conflict rages. 70% of hospitals across Sudan are completely out of service. And for the remaining 30% of hospitals that are in service, uh, you have a shortage of medical professionals who are able to, to work in those hospitals safely. Um, you also have a situation where the RSF, the paramilitary troops, are actually using hospitals as human shields. Coming up on this episode of Target USA. The National Security Podcast. From WTOP in Washington, D.C., this is Target USA. Russia could render huge harm to this country. North Korea's secret missile. Capable of reaching the whole of the United States. Dangerous terrorist. D.C. is repeatedly mentioned as someplace they would like to seek an attack. Cyber criminals. Decryption successful. America has a target on its back. And on this program, we investigate the threats, the people behind them, the agencies fighting them, and the impact on you. This is Target USA, the National Security Podcast. I'm J.J. Green. The first of our two stories today is what took place on the ground in Ukraine. We know a five-year-old girl was killed by Russian rockets again. And we've got Yuri Sag, a spokesman, uh, an advisor to Ukraine's Ministry of Defense, joining us with the latest on that. Yuri, um, what can you tell us about what's taken place today in terms of the fighting inside Ukraine? Today was um, another tragic day because the the terrorists have shelled again Kherson city, killing a small child there. The father of this little girl uh, carried her in his arms to the hospital, but unfortunately... The, the wounds were, you know, incompatible with life, so she, she died. And it's another stark reminder to all of us, you know, that uh, the terrorism continues, the missile strikes continue, and, uh, you know, we have to keep pressing and we have to, this is why we, we you know, for us, every day, every day counts. And this is why a lot of efforts is now being put to uh, put together a JETS coalition for Ukraine, because we believe that, Receiving F-16s fighter jets will considerably improve our defenses as well as our uh, ability to provide cover to our ground forces. How is this jet coalition uh, going to look? Who's involved? Uh, How is it being put together? 
Well, you know, this is an initiative that was announced um, by President Zelensky during his uh, latest European tour. He went to Italy, Germany, France, and the United Kingdom. And everywhere he met, he spoke to his counterparties about the need to create this jet coalition. So since his visit, which was a couple of days ago, we've heard that uh, Rishi Sunak, the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, has actually now spoken with his um, Dutch counterparty and uh, the Prime Minister of uh, the Netherlands. And they will be now, you know, thinking about like how to talk to other countries to help procure for Ukraine these F-16s, because there are some countries in uh, Europe, like the United Kingdom, they just don't have the F-16s. Their fleet of air force consi it consists of different type of aircraft. So they cannot, I mean, they, if they had them, they, I'm sure they would have given them to us, but they don't. Uh, what, what the United Kingdom has given us is, uh, as you know, these storm shadow missiles. These are long range. These are the missiles that we were asking for for a long time. Now, now nowhere in Ukraine there is a place where a Russian terrorist or a war criminal can hide and not be reached by our armed forces. Every inch of Ukrainian territory now is reachable by us. And that means that, you know, our message to the terrorists is you can hide, but you cannot run. We'll get you wherever you are. Speaking of um, your weapons and what you've been able to put together, um, there, there's been a couple of other situations where uh, hypersonic missiles have been shot down. Hypersonics from Russia have been shot down. How are you doing that? See, that's another example of how Russian military might is overrated and blown out of proportion by the Russians themselves. You know, they, they built their existence around propaganda and lies, and they were lying all along. So these hypersonic missiles, you know, we will have to see, I mean, what are they made of really, but uh, we have shot down seven of these hypersonic missiles using the Patriot systems, the Patriot air defense systems that were provided to Ukraine by the United States, for which we're very thankful. I would like to stress that. But, uh, you know, our servicemen, whether they are tank pilots, whether they're jet fighter pilots, whether they are just infantry or whether they are operators of air defense systems, they are very, very determined to be good at what they do. And this is why when, you know, the Raiders spotted these Kinjal hypersonic missiles, you know, the right, correct decisions were taken by our uh, military in the air defense and, you know, they were shot down. There you go. Another myth about Russia's military might busted. Yeah, indeed. Um, it's my understanding that there have been some attacks today in Mykolaiv uh, overnight, I guess, from last night. Uh, yeah. Uh, what are you What are you able to tell us about those attacks? Well, you know, another attacks, uh, another attack on Mykolaiv, which is not far from Kherson, south of Ukraine, and. Uh, you know, uh, they've hit like supermarkets and uh, they've hit like residential, uh, peaceful civilian objects, nothing to do with any military objective. So another war crime, another atrocity. Uh, hopefully the, you know, the, 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 there were no uh, casualties uh, there, but at the same time, the level of destruction continues. So uh, another... Like I said, war crime uh, that we will record and we will prosecute when the time comes. 
One more uh, thing I want to ask you. I've spoken on several occasions with fellow journalists and U.S. intelligence officials about this. One of the things that some people in, in, in our business in the, on the journalism side is struggling with is keeping audiences focused on this problem in Ukraine, the situation in Ukraine. And one of the things that concerns me is that there are a lot of people who are still asking this question, how does this affect me? My response is, Ukraine loses, we all lose, and blah, blah, blah. But what do you say, I should say, and other journalists and intelligence officials, some of whom I've spoken to, what should we say to those folks who are asking this question? Why is this my problem? Ah, that's a very good and um, important question, JJ, that you're asking. Now, I would say that, look, look at us. Look at the Ukrainians. Everything changed overnight. Now, we did not plan for this war. We did not plan the fight. We did not plan for 13 million people in Ukraine to be displaced. And eight of them are actually refugees in far, faraway countries. We did not plan for any of this. And, you know, to us, certain things seem so remote and far away, but it happened to us overnight. Our lives turned upside down. It's never going to be the same. So it is a mistake to think that what is happening now in Ukraine is unrelated to the rest of the world, because I'll give you just a simple example. If, for example, uh, you've heard about the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, the second largest uh, nuclear power plant in Europe. Like last week, there was a lot of commotion on that power plant, which in March of 2022 was um, captured by the terrorists, the Russian terrorists. Now, everybody is on high alert because we don't understand what Russians are up to and what can they do uh, on that nuclear power plant. If, God forbid, something was to happen, now the contamination would spread far beyond the borders of Ukraine. That's a, that's a simple reason why you know people should be concerned. Now, the second uh, important reason, uh, we always stress it's not just about Ukraine because just today we heard finally that hopefully the grain deal, the grain deal that saves lives of millions of people in sub-Saharan Africa and Middle East because they depend on the grain and wheat and sunflower and, and corn, which Ukraine is exporting. So the grain deal today was extended by the Russians, by these terrorists, for another two months, thankfully. And hopefully, you know, there will be millions of people saved as, as a result of that. But we don't need, as, a, as an international community, to live in this atmosphere of constant blackmailing and constant risk of millions of people dying of hunger. And And finally, the third simple point is, in the NATO alliance, which is based on the uh, North Atlantic Treaty Organization, there is Article 5, which stipulates that an attack on one member state is an attack on all. So this is the probably the most important issue to remember to anybody who is wondering why they should, they should worry about what is happening in Ukraine. Because if, God forbid, Ukraine doesn't stop Russia in Ukraine, Russia will continue uh, to go further west. The next countries neighboring Ukraine, Poland, Baltic State, Czech Republic, Hungary, these are all member members of NATO. So right now, Ukraine, Ukrainian army is fighting this. You know, we're not asking for foreign troops to come and help us. But if Article 5 is triggered by Russia's invasion of, like, say, Poland, then the American soldiers, the United Kingdom soldiers, you know, will have to actually put their foot on the ground and actually go and fight. 
Now, do we want that? I don't think that's in anybody's interest. This is why we say, let's stop it in Ukraine. Give us the weapons. Give us the everything that you can. Tanks, armored vehicles, fighter jets. Let's finish it in Ukraine. And let's start rebuilding our lives, both in Ukraine and internationally. Perfect. Yuri, thank you for taking a moment to explain that. Um, I know that. A lot of people know that. But there are many times more people that don't seem to get it. But thank you for putting it into perspective. Thank you. Thank you, JJ. My privilege. My privilege. And we can't forget about what's going on in Sudan. Joining us with that part of our story tonight is Samah Salman. She is the president of the U.S. Educated Sudanese Association. Samah, could you tell us what is the situation inside Sudan right now in terms of the fighting between the army and the RSF? Uh, JJ, first of all, thank you for giving Sudan a platform. Um, and, you know, Sudan and Africa in general. Uh, the situation in Sudan is really critical. Uh, the violence is on an uptick. Uh, you have two military leaders, General Burhan, who leads the Sudanese Armed Forces or the regular army, which is the institutional army of Sudan. Uh, the second general is General Hemeti, and he leads a paramilitary mercenary militia in Sudan. And both of their armies are about equal in size. And basically what they're doing right now is they're fighting for control of Sudan, for control of the government. Uh, they both have ambitions in terms of wanting to uh, lead Sudan. And uh, they've taken 47 million Sudanese hostage in the process and taken countless lives. Uh, to date, The they've killed... Uh, they and their armies have killed just under a thousand Sudanese in the last four weeks. That, those are formal official numbers, but there are literally dead bodies strewn across Khartoum. Uh, some people who have been evacuated from Khartoum have described it as Armageddon in terms of like the hellish situation uh, that they had to go through to get out of Sudan. Uh, the number of injured, so uh, so in terms of the people who have been killed, we're estimating at just around a thousand, and that's in Khartoum and in Darfur, where a lot of violent fighting is also taking place. Um, the real numbers could be 3,000 at least, in terms of the actual counts. Injuries, we're talking 2,000 and more, possibly in the range of 5,000 to 10,000 Sudanese yeah. injuries. Let me ask you this question. I've been hearing from several people that the hospitals have been put in a really bad situation because what's been happening is some of the surgeons and the medical professionals have been either killed or injured or kidnapped in some cases by, I think it's the RSF that have, have done this. Is that accurate? Oh, that's 100%. That's absolutely accurate. Today, right now, 70% of hospitals across Sudan are completely out of service. And for the remaining 30% of hospitals that are in service, uh, you have a shortage of medical professionals who are able to, to work in those hospitals safely. Um, you also have a situation where the RSF, the paramilitary troops are actually using hospitals as human shields. So they'll come into a hospital, take over the hospital, and uh, use it as sort of a bunker 
so you have a situation where the violence is actually now inside the hospitals and you've had people seeking treatment who have been killed as a result of some of the shellings and bombings of hospitals. In the last few days, you've had three hospitals bombed and completely destroyed by the Sudanese armed forces who are basically trying to take out those installations where RSF are hiding. Uh, so it's it's a complete, we're on the verge of one of the worst humanitarian disasters in recent history, and it could be worse than the Yemen humanitarian uh, crisis. So there's been talk about peace negotiations for the last week or so. Yeah. Is, is that happening? Is that even realistic at this point, considering what you've just told us? So, so over the last four weeks, there have been uh, uh, seven or eight ceasefires, attempted ceasefires that have been sort of negotiated by different parties. Uh, the, the ceasefires have all been violated. So whether it is the Sudanese Armed Forces or the RSF paramilitary, they've violated the ceasefire. They haven't honored them. The current situation is you have the United States and the, and Saudi Arabia have taken leadership in terms of hosting uh, negotiations in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia. And just last week, they came out with the Jeddah Declaration of Commitment to Protect the Civilians of Sudan. And so that has been an attempt to get the military generals to at least uh, recognize the fact that uh, Sudanese citizens uh, have, you know, basic fundamental human rights and th that it's their duty to protect civilians and not kill them. Um, so the negotiations are moving rather slowly. Um, the first phase is that declaration. The second phase that they're working on right now is uh, basically a silencing of the guns, an immediate ceasefire um, to achieve, you know, humanitarian safe corridors, because currently international NGOs and local NGOs have stopped working. Um, NGO workers have been evacuated from Sudan. I believe the only NGO currently in Sudan is MSF, Medicine Sans Frontier, and they are very brave, uh, extremely dedicated. Um, the the negotiations are tough. They're difficult because uh, both generals think they can win. It's a winner-take-all situation. And they're basically in a stalemate right now where they've each got uh, forces on the ground. Uh, the Sudanese armed forces have, have um, uh, an air force. And so they're, they're basically using their air fire uh, to, to, to shell and to bomb from above. The RSF, which is a paramilitary, uh, has surface-to-air missiles, so they can sort of defend themselves against attack and try to bring down a few planes, but they're basically, their strategy is more urban warfare. So you've got the war taking place in very densely populated areas where the RSF and the ASF are shooting at each other. So it's an extremely dangerous situation, and that tells you why you have so many dead bodies on the streets. Uh, we were pushing very hard for uh, the current negotiations to be supported by all international actors because we need as wide um, uh, a coalition, a bro as broad an international coalition as possible to bring a huge amount of pressure on these generals because uh, they're relentless about their ambitions to control Sudan. And uh, unfortunately, the the negotiations, the ceasefire negotiations have been going extremely slowly. Yeah. 
What about um, the Wagner Group, the the Russian group there? There's been a lot of talk about them actually influencing this situation. Um, is there any truth to that? And and what is what is your understanding of their their impact on this conflict? Absolutely, JJ. The Wagner Group have a very poisonous and very toxic role in the Sudan War, and um, it's a situation where Russia, uh, Putin actually um, is feeding both sides of the conflict. It's actually, it sounds pretty crazy, but the reason that's happening is that the Sudanese army and the RSF paramilitary were actually allies before the war broke out because they were in a joint power, they were in a power sharing agreement um, where they basically conducted a military coup where they ousted the democratic prime minister uh, who has been leading Sudan since the Sudanese revolution in 2019. I know that's a little bit confusing. So the situation is that um, Burhan, General Al-Burhan, commander of the Sudanese army, has an agreement with Putin to allow Russia to build a naval base in the Red Sea. And the U.S. has been rightfully upset about this and very frustrated with this. At the same time, the Wagner Group, paramilitary mercenary group, works very closely with the other side, uh, General uh, Hemeti, who is also a mercenary. So what happens here is that you have Hemeti has given the Wagner Group rights to some of the gold mines in Darfur, in the west of Sudan. And in exchange, Hemeti gets weapons, he gets arms, and he gets military training. And this has been the case for the past four years. And something that I think some of our listeners might not be aware of is that there's been an expose done where the gold that is smuggled out of Sudan to Russia, a big chunk of that is being used to finance Russia's war on Ukraine. And, you know, there have been some outlets uh, and some investigative journalists who have done exposés on that. And so the Ukraine war and Sudan war are actually intertwined uh, in a a very strange, you know, twist of fate. And and the link there is the the Russian Wagner group. So they have a very, very dangerous role in the Sudan war. And uh, Russia, you know, basically Russia's involvement in and interests in Sudan are are causing this conflict conflict to be prolonged and protracted. A couple more things for you. Um, what would it take, from your perspective, in your opinion, to stop the fighting? Clearly, it's going to either be some kind of external force or some kind of uh, internal mistake or problem with one of the armies. Uh, that's just my uneducated view about it. What are your thoughts about it? JJ, that's a tough question. And that's something that we as, you know, activists and, um, you know, Sudanese who are trying to to help influence policy are, are really having a hard time with. And the reason that's so difficult is that uh, the military in Sudan and the paramilitary, they're extremely powerful. They have a huge amount of financial resources. Currently, uh, so recently, uh, Joe Biden, President Biden, passed an executive order uh, that would apply targeted 
sanctions. And I want to be very clear about the fact that they're targeted sanctions and they're meant to cut the supply of, of finances and uh, apply, you know, visa and travel restrictions to the two generals and anyone else who is complicit in the Sudan war. Um, it's important to stress that we have lobbied very hard for there to be targeted sanctions and not comprehensive sanctions because comprehensive sanctions tend to hurt the Sudanese people and the entire population. So the U.S. has really taken a leadership uh, a role there. Um, what's missing is for the U.S. to actually name names in those sanctions. So what they've said is that they are currently leading alongside the Saudis the negotiation efforts in Jeddah. And if the generals aren't willing to come to some sort of agreement soon, that they're going to have to take out that stick and start to wield those consequences of sanctions. Um, the, the only other real thing that could help is to cut off the supply of weapons. And that's really, really tough because even though you have a UN arms embargo against Sudan, and even though the U.S. also uh, has policy that says that they will not supply the U.S. with arms, uh, arms are coming into Sudan through Libya, through General Haftar of Libya. Uh, they're coming in through the Russians. Uh, they're coming in through, we think, some of the other uh, Arab and African states. Uh, and 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 the problem there is that they, those countries and those routes are largely outside of the formal uh, arms trading um, supply chains that the arms embargoes actually restrict. So most of this are most of these are smuggled arms, you know, coming in through the border of Chad, for example. So it's really really hard to to control those. So the only other thing you can do is try to cut the financial flow um, that is helping those generals buy these arms. Okay. And um, basically the U.S.'s leadership in terms of sanctions, sanctioning the generals helps with that. But we also want to see leadership from countries like Turkey, like the United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia in, and Russia in terms of cutting the flow of finances that's supplying these generals. And, and you can understand in terms of the geopolitics and the interests, how challenging that is. Yeah. Very last thing before we run out of time here, I've got to run. I know you do too, but I want to ask this question though, Samach. Um, the war in Ukraine has been going on for a while and sometimes it's a struggle to keep people focused on the importance of that war and i am concerned that the same might take place with this conflict the further we get away from the daily reports of tragedies as horrible as it is the less attention people pay to this festering problem as we didn't pay a lot of attention to it in the run-up to it, when we should have been, we should stay focused on this now. So what are the reasons why we need to stay focused? What are the reasons why people in the United States and in other places need to focus on this? Because if Sudan loses, the rest of us lose too. Why is it, explain, explain why we need to stay focused on this. We, we need to stay focused because Sudan has been, the Sudanese people and Sudanese youth um, created a revolution in 2019. And I think a lot of people saw the media coverage of that and what a grand 
and uh, beautiful revolution it was in 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 our you know in in our um uh basically our our we're looking for sudan to become a democratic country and so in our quest for democracy uh we 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 are now at a point we're at uh, a really difficult tipping point where either sudanese prevail and are able to bring an end to this war with the help of the international community, or we get stuck in a very long and protracted war and our dreams and aspirations of, of democracy are, are postponed uh, to you know, a, a very distant future um, goal. So the thing is, is that we share the same values that Americans share, that everyone else in, 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 in the world shares, which is, the the desire to live you know a life of dignity a life where we have personal freedoms we have the freedom of of you know um religion you know freedom of uh expression and the the basically to live in a society where you don't uh fear reprisal you don't fear that your human rights are going to be violated that you're going to be bombed or shelled or your home is going to be completely destroyed uh when you wake up in the morning so what we want is basically what every other human citizen in this world wants which is to live a, a life of dignity in a, in a country that is democratic sabah thank you very much for so eloquently explaining to us this serious issue and uh, this problem laying it out for us thank you very much thank you jj for this platform uh and for giving the sudan uh crisis a platform i appreciate that and so do my fellow sudanese brothers and sisters that's it for this episode of target usa coming up in our next episode what's the next threat to the u.s where is it coming from how do you stop it what if it's internal What if we don't see it coming? We'll examine all of that. That's coming up on the next episode of Target USA. In the meantime, if you have any questions or comments about the program, send me an email. You can reach me at jgreen at wtop.com. The letter J, the color green, one word, at Whiskey Tango Oscar Papa. jgreen at wtop.com. Also, please subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Twitter. We're at TUSA Podcast. That's at Tango Uniform Sierra Alpha Podcast. And if you want more national security news, you can sign up for my newsletter. It's called Inside the Skiff, and you can sign up at WTOP.com slash email. I'm J.J. Green, and this is Target USA. The National Security Podcast.